If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Psalms, which is right about in the middle of your Bible. We're going to Psalm 63. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets or the ends of the side aisles. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. We're turning to Psalm 63. Um, If you're using one of these Bibles, these paperback ones we provided, that's page 410. So we're concluding this morning a three-week series where we're on the Psalms, which is the song book of the Bible, looking at one psalm each week and very simply asking the question, what does this teach us about who God is? Who is this God we meet when we sing and when we pray? Who's this God on the other end of the line? And so today, our last Sunday in the Psalms will be Psalm 63. Please follow along as I read, and this should be on the screen behind me as well. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Would you pray with me? Father, this, this is the God we approach. This is the God that you are, the God whose love is better than life, the God in whose wings we can sing for joy. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you for the Psalms, for how they direct us to you, for how they give voice to the cry of our hearts. Thank you for this Psalm. Thank you that this is your word, that you are speaking As we open this book, you are speaking. And so we ask that you would speak this morning, that we would hear from you. It's what we need more than we need anything else. Yours is the voice we need. And so come, speak, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. My favorite songwriter is a guy you probably never heard of. His name is Andrew Peterson, and he is based in Nashville, in the States, and he travels quite a bit through like the Midwestern part of the States, which is where I lived before I moved here. And so um, I've seen him probably eight times live, which ties for most all time for me right next to Dave Matthews' band, for which I had quite a significant phase in college. And, And what I love about his concerts is getting the story behind his songs. So I found that when he releases an album, I'll listen to it and I'll like it. But once I've heard the songs live, I'll love the songs, because the lyrics have taken on a new richness after I knew what was going on in his life and in his family and in his heart when he was writing them. Psalm 63 is a song 
with a backstory. It emerges from a heartbreaking episode in the life of King David. Look at the superscription of the psalm. Whenever you read the psalms, make sure you read the superscriptions. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, there were two seasons in David's life where he was out for extended periods of time in the wilderness. And one of those was before he was the king, when Saul was the king and David was one of his servants and one of his military commanders. And at that point, Saul had turned away from God. David loved God. And God was so obviously with David and so obviously not with Saul, that Saul was jealous of David, threatened by David, and he was always trying to kill him. So David was always out in the wilderness, running from place to place, on the run from his life, trying to keep one step ahead of the king and the army. And that, that was one time when he was in the wilderness, but that's probably not when this psalm was written. Because look at verse, verse 11. David says, But the king shall rejoice in God. So this was written when David was already the king. So when was David in the wilderness when he was already the king? David was a man after God's own heart, but he was far from perfect. You probably heard this story. David seduced the wife of one of his military commanders, Uriah, and he he seduced her and then she became pregnant. And then he covered his tracks by having her husband sent into the battle, into the front line, and have him killed. And David eventually repented of that and he was forgiven, but God told him there would be a consequence for his sin. Because he had killed Uriah with the sword, God said that the sword would not depart from David's house, but God would raise up evil against David from within his own family. And sure enough, more than 10 years later, one of David's own sons, Absalom, stole the hearts of the people and he declared himself to be the king. He led a rebellion against his father. And so David had to flee for his life from his son. And where did he go? Into the wilderness. And when you think of wilderness, don't think of jungle. Think of desert, arid, rocky places where shelter and food and water are incredibly hard to come by. David was heartbroken and exhausted and hungry and thirsty and in extraordinary danger. And in that wilderness, David wrote a song of praise. Verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Did you know that it's possible to have joy in the wilderness? To be betrayed and heartbroken, to be in need and in danger and yet to have a song in your heart. How can that be? How can we become like that? That's why Psalm 63 is in your Bible. And so we're going to see in this psalm two essentials to joy and a picture of the life that flows from them. And you have a bulletin on, or a, an outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to use that. The first essential to joy is you must admit that only God can satisfy you. You must come to the place where you know that nothing in this world can satisfy you. Does it seem strange to you to hear David speak this way? Look at verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David is in a literal dry and weary land where there is no water. He's in the wilderness. His list of needs is endless. He needs weapons for the people who are with him. He needs uh, allies who can supply them with food. He needs water. He needs shelter. He needs to stay alive. But what he needs more than anything is God. 
His soul thirsts for him. He looks around at this barren, this parched wilderness and said, this is what my soul is like without God. If I don't, if I don't have God, I'm going to shrivel up. He knew only God could satisfy him. And he knew that God would. Look at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He longed to get alone with God, to to be alone and to remember him and meditate on him. For David, thinking on God was a feast for his soul. Time with God was like, it was like Christmas dinner. It was like Thanksgiving. He didn't didn't just love God. He had what C.S. Lewis called an appetite for God. He knew that God alone could satisfy him. Have you found this yet? Have you found that nothing else satisfies you? And keep in mind that David is saying this as someone who knows God and believes in him. He says in verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. This isn't someone who has never known God before, someone who has just realized that they need God and they don't have him. This is someone who knows God and says, God, I need more of you. So a question that every parent has to ask themselves from time to time is, how sick is this kid? The kid is sick, but how sick is he? Is he like, needs an extra nap sick? Is he um, like stay home from school sick? Is he, is he call the doctor sick? How sick is this kid? And in our family, one of the criteria we use, and maybe you guys do as well for determining how sick a kid is, is whether he's lost his appetite. So we have boys, and girls might be different, but we spend basically every afternoon telling the children why they can't have one more snack. Okay, so if we ever say to a child, do you feel like a snack? And they say, I'm not really hungry. That automatically bumps them up to call the doctor sick. It's, a, like it's, a, it's an immediate escalation. Or maybe, maybe you've been a caregiver for a grandparent or a parent at the end of their life, and you know that when their appetite goes, the end is near. Hunger is a sign of health. And what David is voicing, a hunger for God, that's normal Christian experience. So do you hunger for time with God? Do you wake up in the morning sensing your need for God, that even more than you need breakfast, even more than you need to check Facebook, maybe, maybe even more than you need a cup of coffee, you need God? When a day passes without any time with him, do you feel like you've missed a meal? Does your spiritual stomach grumble? Do you anticipate our time together on Sundays, a time unlike any other in the week when we, we gather, we hear God's word, we praise him together, we get to share with one another how we're doing, how we can pray for each other? This church, this gathering of believers, this is the temple of God. When we gather, God is here. Do you long for this? Or is church just what you do when you have nothing else on on a Sunday? Now, notice I'm not saying you really ought to be reading your Bible and praying and being at church every week. I'm not trying to guilt you or obligate you. I'm asking, don't you want to? And if you don't want to, why not? A few years ago, Kim and I did the Whole30, which is this like 30-day cleanse kind of thing where you eat whole foods and you get off carbs and sugar and processed food and all these other things that I immediately started to eat again as soon as the 30 days were over. But we read a book about it before we did it, and I remember that one part of that book because it was about Oreos, which I love. 
And it, this is part of the problem. And it said that when we eat Oreos, the reason we have a hard time stopping is that they circumvent our body's breaking mechanism. So your body has this system, this way of telling you when you can stop eating, when you've gotten enough. And um, whole foods, like a steak, okay, you eat a steak and it tastes good, but it's also full of nutrition. It nourishes your body. And so eventually you'll get to a point where your body says, that's enough. Like we're, we're We don't stop because we have ceased to like steak. We don't stop because we have crammed our body so physically full that we can't put anything else in there. We stop because our body says, we're done here. But Oreos have no nutrition at all. They're just taste. So you can eat and eat and eat Oreos, and your body will never say, we're done here, because it hasn't gotten anything that it needs. Oreos are a tasty dessert, but they're a terrible meal because they're not what your body was made to run on. And the same principle applies to our spiritual lives. We are made to live on God. Only he can satisfy. He's the meal. And we keep trying to satisfy ourselves with other things. We say, if I can just get to this level, this level in my career, then I'll be satisfied. But you weren't made to live on that, and so it's never enough. You just work and work and work. Or we say, if if my kids will be happy and successful, then I'll be satisfied. But you weren't made to live on that, and so it's never enough. You just get more and more wrapped up in their lives, put more and more pressure on them to succeed. And we say, if if I can just save enough money to retire and travel, then I'll be satisfied. But you weren't made to live on that, and so it's never enough. And you just put more and more away. None of those things are bad, but none of them are food for your soul. And all of those things can be taken away. Right? If David's life was wrapped up in his career and in his family and in his possessions, then if he was driven by his son into the wilderness, it would be like he'd lost everything. And yet, what does he say in verse 3? Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. He lost almost everything. He was in danger of losing his life, but he knew that God's love was better than life, so he could still praise him. For David, being loved by God, being in intimate relationship with him, it was so precious that there was nothing he could not lose, nothing he could not part with, as long as he had God. This reminded me of one of my favorite psalms, which is Psalm 73, not by David, but by Asaph. And he says, "Whom To God, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you're a Christian, God is your portion. He's your inheritance. For other people, money may be their treasure, or fame, or power, but God is our treasure. Can you say to God, you're enough for me? There are other things I want, but there's nothing I need except you. If, or another way to say it is, if you could have everything this world has to offer, meaningful work, loving family, beachfront home, unlimited vacation, If you could have all that without God, could you be happy? Or have you come to the place where you've tried enough other things that you could admit that only God can truly satisfy you? And if you know that only God can satisfy you, how do you seek him? That's the second essential to joy. Seek God by meditating on who he is and what he's done. How did David seek God? Look at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. 
When David hungered and thirsted for God, he satisfied himself by remembering God, by meditating on him. And when the Bible talks about meditation, it's not what our culture means. Meditation in the Bible is just pondering, considering, mulling over. It's not opening your Bible, reading a chapter, putting it away. It's, it's considering what you read, rolling it over in your mind, thinking, what does this tell me about God? What does this say about my life? And this is what David did. Look, look what he says in verse 6. This, is, this was his plan on when he could think and meditate. He says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David was going to wait till everyone else was sleeping, at least everyone else who wasn't keeping watch. And when he was alone and it was quiet, he was going to give God his full attention. And what did he meditate on? He remembers, he says in verse 7, For you have been my help. He thinks about how God has been his help. Maybe he thinks back to the early days about facing Goliath with just a staff and a sling and five stones and how he came out unscathed. Or maybe he thinks back to when he was on the run the first time from Saul and God always delivered him in the nick of time. Maybe he thought back to how he had failed as utterly as any human can fail and yet God forgave and restored him. God has been his help. In verse 2, he thinks back. He remembers worshiping at the temple. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He thinks of gathering with with God's people in worship and, and how God had revealed himself to him there. He meditates on God's power, that God made all things and rules all things, that if God wants to rescue David, there's not a human on earth that can stop him. God can make bread fall from heaven. He can bring water out of a rock. God can take care of David even in the wilderness. Even in the wilderness, he can meet all of his needs. He meditates on God's glory, that the night sky and the blue Mediterranean and a sunset in the mountains can't even come close to the beauty of God and his goodness. This God is perfect in all his ways, perfect in holiness, perfect in compassion, perfect in justice. God is great, and even if he'd done nothing for us, he'd still be worthy of all our praise. And he meditates on God's steadfast love, which is better than life. Even though he'd been far from perfect, this God had raised him up from being a shepherd and made him the king of his people. He had always kept his promises, always forgiven him, always been near in trouble. And as he thought on God, as he remembered him and meditated on him, his soul feasted. And how amazing is it that we know even more than David did of the power and glory and love of God. David didn't know that God was going to come into the world as a man so we could see his glory in the face of Jesus. He didn't know that God would give his son's life in love for the world. He didn't know that God would raise him in power, victorious over his death and ours. How much more do we have to remember and meditate on than he did? Do you ever stop, if you're a Christian, do you ever stop to just marvel that God saved you. There was nothing especially good about you. Forgive me for saying it. It applies to me too. There was nothing about you that God just had to have. But before you were born, he loved you. He wanted you. He forgave you. He promised to never fail you. You are his delight, the apple of his eye. And that says nothing about your goodness and everything about his When you think on that, doesn't it gladden your heart like nothing in the world can do? This is how our hunger for God is satisfied, by meditating on who he is and what he's done. 
True worship, a heart full of, God, of love for God that overflows into praise, it doesn't just happen. Worship is fueled by truth. The fire of the heart is kindled in the mind. So we can treat time alone with God, reading the Bible and praying like a chore. We can treat Sunday morning like an obligation. But this is how we gather fuel for the fire of love. This is like, I'm in Boy Scouts, and, and what do we need? We're going to start a fire, what do we do? All these Boy Scouts just scatter into the woods to gather sticks and anything that will burn, right? Things that they shouldn't burn, they gather, because they're Boy Scouts. Like, this is, Sunday morning is us gathering fuel for the fire of our love for God. This is how we grow in knowing this God who's worthy of our love. So are you making time for this? Has it been a long time since you opened this book just to meet with God and meditate on him? Have you been sporadic in being here on Sundays? I'm not passing judgment, but haven't you found that when you're not meeting with God, when you're not worshiping with his people, that your hunger for him wanes and your love for him cools? Are you making yourself too busy for the only thing that will really satisfy you? Do you know that God wants to satisfy you? He put this psalm in your Bible because he wants us to earnestly seek him, to hunger and to thirst and to find in him a feast for our souls. And because David knew that, he gave up sleep rather than missing time with God. Seeking God takes effort, but it's abundantly rewarded because God is beckoning us to joy. The more you know him, the more you'll want him. And as you draw near to him, What will characterize your life? Finally, the overflow, praise and confidence, even in trouble. This is how David could praise God in the wilderness, even when he was far from home and his own son was trying to kill him. The psalm is shot through with praise. Look at verse 3 again. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, my mouth will praise you. With joyful lips. Verse 7, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Because David knows who God is and what he's done, he can praise him even in trouble. There was a time when the Apostle Paul was traveling with his friend Silas. They were in Philippi and they were preaching about Jesus. And this crowd attacked them. They were beaten with rods and they were thrown in prison. And in the middle of the night, this is recorded in the book of Acts, and Luke tells us that in the middle of the night, they were praying and singing hymns to God. So they'd been rejected and beaten and unjustly imprisoned, and they were singing. Why? Because they knew what David knew, that God's love is better than life. They could have nothing but him and still be richer than the person who has everything except him. Their hearts were satisfied in God. Praising God is not an obligation. It's not a chore he gives us so we can learn our, earn our allowance. It is the overflow of a heart satisfied with the power and the glory and the love of God. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis observes that praise is natural. We naturally praise what we enjoy. So those of you who saw the Avengers movie, didn't you immediately want to talk to somebody about it? When you read a great article online or you see a hilarious meme, don't you immediately start looking for the share button. You want someone to praise this with you, right? When you, when you eat a great meal, do you just sort of like chew in silence, keeping your face the same? Or do you go, mmm, right? That's what we do. We naturally praise what we enjoy. So when the Psalms call us to a life of praise, 
They're not telling us that God is vain and insecure and needs a compliment now and then to feel better about himself. They're inviting us to know a God so great and so good that our enjoyment of him will naturally overflow into praise. And what other mark does David's life bear of his satisfaction in God? Not just praise, but confidence in God's future care for him. Look at verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Knowing who God is and what he'd done gave David confidence in who God would be and what he would do. God's right hand would uphold him. So in the Bible, the right hand is the, it's the hand of favor. David knew that even though everything seemed to turn against, have turned against him, he had the favor of God. Though his enemies seemed to have the upper hand, it was they, not he, who would be brought down. The mouths of liars would be stopped. The king would be victorious. David knew this God who loved him, who had made him king, who had been with him the last time he was on the run. This God would be with him. He was the God who held the future. David was being treated unjustly, but he knew that in the end, God's justice would be done. Being satisfied in God gave David an amazing peace and resilience in the wilderness. Do you have this confidence that God will care for you? I don't mean confidence that God will protect you from all trouble, but like David, that God would be with you in all of your trouble, that his will will be done in the end. The God who loves you cannot be thwarted. Those who seek him will never be put to shame. But what about those of us who haven't sought God perfectly? And I'm talking about all of us, right? Can those of us who have fallen short, who have again and again sought to quench our thirst with other things, with lesser things, can we be as sure as David was that God's right hand of favor is for us? Yes. Remember that David didn't always seek God. He'd been, his being driven into the wilderness was a consequence of his own massive sin. But when David sought God, he found him, and we'll find him too. Because even though all our seeking falls short, there's someone who has sought him perfectly for us. Because David isn't the only king who was driven out into the wilderness. Another king was once out in the wilderness of Judah. He too was hungry. And the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. But the king said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil said to him, Worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. But the king said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus always sought God first. He always hungered for God most. You and I are always seeking after lesser things, hoping they will satisfy, but Jesus always perfectly sought his satisfaction in God. And yet at the end of his life, as he hung on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, God's perfect son sought him and couldn't find him. Why? 
because he was suffering in the place of all those who haven't sought God as they should. When we give our hearts to lesser things, when we seek to satisfy ourselves with things that are not God, we sin. We treat him like he's not enough for us, like he's not the greatest thing in the universe. We say to God, you're not enough for me. But Jesus willingly and lovingly took the punishment our sins deserve. On the cross, Jesus lost God, so all who seek him can find him. Even if you failed in every way imaginable, this loving God wants to be found by you. If you have a hunger for him, it's because he means to satisfy you with himself. We don't gather here on Sundays to sing because everything is perfect in our lives, because we've always done what we should. We gather to praise because we know a God who gave his son's life so he could offer himself to everyone who has messed up and everyone who is messed up. We gather here on Sundays to remember him together and to rekindle the fire of love in our hearts that seem to grow cool every week. Listen, God alone can satisfy us. You can't be satisfied without him, but with him you can be satisfied even in trouble. Do you know him? Let's pray. Our God, as we think on your power and your glory and your steadfast love, we want to praise you. We want to be satisfied in you. We want to draw near to you. And we, we repent of all the things that we treat like they can be for us what only you can be for us. The things that we think will give us meaning, the things we think will give us joy, the things we think will keep us safe. We repent of our love for those things and we ask that you would forgive us and help us to treasure you most. And we, this morning, prize Jesus because he came from heaven to take our place He came from heaven to bring us to you so that you could be our treasure, so we could come to know you even though we don't deserve it. We adore you, Jesus. And we ask that as we turn our attention to response and to praise, that you would help us to feast on you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.